Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Today, I talked to Riaz Megji, TV host and Human Connection keynote speaker, about isolation and connection. Riaz and I dive deep into his book, Every Conversation Counts, The Five Habits of Human Connection That Build Extraordinary Relationships. Join us and start building your relationships today. Riaz, welcome to the Pursuit of Learning. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you today. I want to start off with what has you motivated in life? What gets you excited and what are two to three things that you want to make sure we cover off in this conversation today? Well, Clint, thanks for having me on, man. Congrats on on the podcast and what you're doing, helping share uh, important messages. And where we're at right now, if you're listening to this, uh, what we're recording this mid, almost midpoint of 2021, and the consistent message and curiosity for me really lies on the power of human connection, what we've learned in this past year, and now the curiosity of how human connection exists, meaningful human connection exists in this new hybrid reality. So I'm curious of the transition back to work, the reflection people have had from the past year, uh, habits maybe they let go of, habits you know they learned and they're going to engage in, but above all of just how we continue to open up, show the real side of ourselves and find meaningful human connection in every conversation we can have. It's a lot of great information right there and we'll definitely dive through some of that I, I hadn't even been thinking Riaz much about the transition back what habits you picked up what habits you dropped and what the return you know to the new normal will look like so that will be a great thing to dive into with you and explore together the on the power of human connection you start every conversation counts and for those who haven't read it, pick up a copy, an absolute great read. You start off by talking about some of what we're going through, COVID, loneliness, and on the loneliness aspect, some of that is tied to the isolation. And you describe what definitions of loneliness are and what may be surprising to some people given your on-air lifestyle is that you've had challenges with loneliness yourself in life. Can you take our listeners through what you mean by loneliness and what some of the challenges you've dealt with yourself are? Yeah, th this concept of loneliness on a simple baseline level is the perceived lack of meaningful social connection. And if you think about that concept in your life as you listen to this, where has that shown up? Because chances are it has at one point or another. And Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General uh, in the States, uh, I love his book together where he's addressing loneliness and he 
quantifies it and breaks it down to that there's several forms of loneliness. There could be intimate loneliness where you're lacking that meaningful connection with a partner, uh, relational where you're lacking uh, social support with friends, perhaps family, collective loneliness, missing out on the part of a sense of belonging with an organization and isolation, which we've all felt uh, firsthand this past year and that we can all relate to in so many ways. And for me, uh, loneliness really showed up and I didn't think too much about it until I did the deep dive of research of what social anxiety and, and being an introvert really meant growing up in my early years. And in my teens, uh, that's where it really showed up in high school because I find having interviewed people for a living for almost 20 years now, there are two things that really are, are commonalities with everyone we meet. One, you want to fit in. Two, you want to stand out. And in high school, you think about... You know, the groups going on, you're trying to, to to fit in with social norms. That was a point where I realized I felt alone. Didn't have a, a strong group of friends before grade 11, was trying to find my place, and I just felt lost. But I credit the power of a teacher, and I think any of us can be teachers in any given conversation. A great teacher at North Delta Senior Secondary School, uh, the late great Colin Vint, when I transitioned from grade 10 to grade 11, I took his acting class. And what made him a great teacher, and I think this applies to any great leader, is that they see something before you see it for yourself. And he saw potential. And if you get into an acting class, it is a great exercise of trial and error without the fear of judgment and failure. And when you remove judgment and failure, which are huge factors in how we can feel emotionally isolated, especially in a time like this, uh, he set his students up to succeed, myself included, and helped me build confidence and allow myself to come into my true character, my true personality, and explore the art of connection and explore the art of presentation. So the early years for me in the teens, and I think this is very common, especially right now growing up in an age of technology and social media, how we, we can feel inadequate through a culture of comparison of how loneliness can exist. But on a baseline, that perceived lack of meaningful social connection, that was a big challenge. Loneliness was a big, big challenge pre-COVID that many people didn't talk about. But now, perhaps one of the great silver linings is we felt it, we all felt it individually, and, and we started talking about it. And that's what I hope this book and this message helps people do. Riaz, one of the things you mentioned in there was technology. And you write that technology can be a powerful tool for connection, but it can also be an equally powerful tool for destroying connection. I felt that was very deep. And in the book, you contrasted both sides really well. Can you take our listeners through what some of the pros and the cons of technology are? for example, social media and how it can actually be exacerbating disconnection. Great. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, social media is such a powerful vehicle to efficiently reach out to someone that you might not have had access to before. So it provides efficiency, it provides convenience, and it can provide connection if you're leading with a creation over consumption mindset. And here's what I mean by that. If we're using social media to engage in ways where we're asking uh, powerful questions and having a healthy back and forth and creating a sense of dialogue, then you can create powerful connection if we're using it intentionally. But the challenge I believe we're seeing and we're feeling in this era is that if we fall into passive mode, if we fall into autopilot mode with social media, we're 
it becomes more of a distraction to us. <laughs> and, you know, I've been guilty of this too, right? You fall down a rabbit hole if you're scrolling through Insta and then half an hour goes by and you're like, what just happened here? But the challenge of social media, regardless of the medium you're scrolling, is that it can become a distraction if you're in passive mode. And then that distraction can turn to a dangerous comparison. Like the interesting thing about COVID and, and this isolation is that, <laughs> you know, the FOMO went away because nobody was doing anything. We were all essentially doing the same thing, isolating, self-isolating at home. So it made things easier. But if the distraction becomes a consistent comparison, that's the dangerous part where you could fall into judgment, self-sabotage, and then feeling more emotionally isolated simply because we feel inadequate. And many people practice perfection on social media. And if I get caught up in the habit of scrolling and looking at somebody else, especially somebody else in, in, in you know, my sphere of influence or, or someone I look up to and think, well, they're not struggling. They've got a good, but they're just projecting perfection. And if this is my habit every single day, uh, there's so many studies and research that shows how that impacts us emotionally and then how we retreat and think we're inadequate, we're missing something, and then you can fall into stress, anxiety, and depression cycles. So it really comes down to using social media in an intentional way. So use it intentionally. Focus on creation over consumption, active versus passive use. And Riaz, tied to that, as a father... As a parent, how do we deal with social media with our children? That's a big challenge. Like, d tell me about your life <laughs> dealing with kids. Yeah, well, my oldest son graduated elementary school today, starts high school. Thank you. Thank you. He looked great in one of my suits. It's already starting to be too small on him. So, you know, he's going into grade eight. He's already outgrown me, uh, which is fun. I love it. But grade eight... Now he's getting to that age where the boys and the girls start to like each other. It's something new for them. And all of a sudden, his friends are all on social media. You walk by, they're all on TikTok or they're on Instagram. And I try to have conversations with them that I think align with what you're saying. And saying to them, hey, don't just be consumers of those tools. If you really want to use them, create something. Put yourself out there and be the person people are following versus just endlessly following other people and flipping through their feeds. And the other thing is just reminding them no one puts their best foot or their worst foot forward on social media. I don't post photos of when I'm yelling at you because you won't go to bed or didn't clean your room. We all put our best foot forward. And so don't think that's real life. And other than that, just try to say to them, hey, you shouldn't spend all your time on it. You should be trying to live your life. Those are the main conversations I have around around it, Riaz. It's hard because it's like these kids are now with COVID, they're inside so much more than they ever would have been, right? Normally, you could just be like, hey, go outside for a few hours. Now, they're sort of locked in their room and their only way to connect with their friends is their iPad, Roblox, etc. Fortnite. Yeah. A double-edged sword, but you are in control of how you use this device. And given the, the things that you've talked about of, you know, how you're championing this, this medium with, with, you know, with your kids, the only thing I would add to this is that don't sacrifice authenticity for approval. Mm, yes. 
And social media can be such a tool for external validation. Like, you know, one of the things I start this book with, and this is what I've just observed over the years, is that we live in a culture of look at me instead of look at you. And I think that's the tool. If they're going to use social media, how can you drive it in a way that it's look at you? And that's asking really good questions so you can dial in and show, you know, you care about people. You know, I'm listening to what you're saying. You can trust me with this. Whether you're face-to-face or using social media, those are three key questions I believe we're all asking, especially first impressions of, do you care about me? Are you listening to me and can I trust you? So if we can champion that message, that no matter what you do or what you share, don't share it for approval because the approval will never be enough. It will never be enough. You will never have 100% approval no matter what you share out there. No matter how great your intention is to create and engage somebody, Even if you have an overwhelming amount of feedback and support in your echo chamber, another thing is break out of your echo chamber. And once you do, you'll get resistance. And and that part of it is okay. You know, some people fear haters and they think, well, how do you take down haters? The first question I have with any hater that comes at you is ask yourself, are they right? Have they seen something? Have they observed something that was a blind spot for you? And don't get me wrong, like there's haters out there that'll attack you for how you look, how you speak, things that, you know what? They're a part of your identity. You can't change that. And that's fine. That has more to say, that that has more to tell about who they are as opposed to who you are. But they may make a valuable observation with the content you share that disagrees with the stance you take, and that's okay. But it might be an insightful take that provides you to just be better and level up the content you're going to engage with. Fair amount to unpack in there. Thank you. The With the haters... The, you had a very good point. And it's something teaching young people when it comes to work, and even that I've had to learn over time, when you get criticism, it's either right or it's wrong. If it's right, use it to improve. If it's wrong, learn to let it go. Let's say the haters are there and they're saying things that are right or they're saying things that are wrong. How do you engage with them in an empathetic way to turn that hatred into a conversation, into an engagement so that you can come out and hopefully have, whether it's mutual respect or at least a conversation, we ask. Acknowledgement and curiosity. If any hater is going to come at you um, and, and they've pointed out something that's of value instead of, and we see this all the time on social media where people get defensive and they dismiss them. If you want to truly acknowledge somebody, if you're thinking, well, how can I practice that on a daily basis? Think about how in your conversations, whether they're face-to-face or online, how can you discover before you dismiss? And when you give somebody that opportunity to be seen and heard, uh, if they're, they're coming at you with resistance, it's amazing what happens because they're expecting you to just shut them down. But if you open it up, it creates an interesting dynamic. And then you can ask those questions of... Well, what didn't land for you? What created this resistance? What created this heightened, intense emotional reaction? And then they'll feel like you're giving them a bit of respect. And that's going to increase your chances to get respect in return. You know, there was a, for example, there was a story uh, that, that stuck with me. And I documented this in the book with comedian Sarah Silverman. And she, I mean, she's had her fair share of controversial zingers in her time. I mean, every comedian will. But when a hater threw a one-word expletive at her on Twitter, you would think, well, how is somebody going to respond when somebody comes at you with just such an offensive word? 
instead of firing back, she got curious and clicks on this guy's profile, tries to understand like who he is, what's going on, and finds out that he's been throwing a lot of hate on social media, but he's got a lot of back pain. Like he's got a lot of physical issues going on. And her return tweet addresses that, saying your hate is thinly veiled pain. So you said right there, and we're talking about curiosity. So we're going down the rabbit hole. And we're effectively, with curiosity, it's a main component of your second habit of building human connection, which is make small talk bigger. And you talked about being an introvert. I'm also uh, an introvert and I'm an analytical person. And that largely means, Riaz, I hate small talk, right? Like you want to go to a go to a pub and have a conversation for two, three hours about the things we're talking about right now or meaty things in life all day, every day. You want to talk about the weather? Can't do it. And so one of the things you do is you say, that we need to be authentically curious in order to get through the small talk and engage with the person on the other side. Can you take our listeners through how to do that? Not with a the hater example, although it works even there, but in, in terms of how to improve their small talk. I'm going to ask you this because this is such a common pain point for people. When you think about small talk, Clint, what do you hate about it? It's so trivial and menial, and I don't think anyone actually cares about what's being said, right? Do I care about the weather or the Canucks game last night? Well, maybe the Canucks game last night, but probably not, right? <laughs> you know, if if someone threw out, hey, what did you think of this situation that happened in a foreign country, and it was a pretty impactful situation, you could dive right into a meaningful conversation. And it would be something that both sides actually cared about. And that's what's missing to me is why are we using words if we don't care? It's a great way to describe it. Why are we using words if we don't care? Because that speaks to the autopilot mode we're in. I mean, you, you talk weather, someone could say, you know, what'd you do on the weekend? Th th these are just throwaway questions that we hear so frequently that we're automatically just generic responses. Hey, how are you? Good. Yeah. Okay. What'd you do on the weekend? Yeah, this. And we're just going through just trivial facts. And if we want to get past that, I think it's recognizing studying what small talk represents. I find the biggest point of resistance of why people despise it is that small talk has just become this defense mechanism to prevent us from the embarrassment of getting emotional in front of people we don't know. Or maybe we have a fear of triggering something or hitting a nerve with somebody else and we're not ready for the emotional intensity they could unleash on us. But it's a valuable, valuable tool as the starting point to build a relationship and to build on what you were describing of how we can share words that people care about. The first idea is less info, more emotion. We're caught up in exchanging constant information. But once you start hitting on emotion that people care about, and where do you find emotion? Emotion, yeah, sure, you could find it a bit about your career, a bit about your health, but the the meat of it, of that emotion lies in relationships. 
and the late great, uh, you know, psychiatrist learning uh, Gordon Livingston, his work on the equation of happiness, which you gave the Canucks example. So I'm going to say this is the happiness hat trick. I loved how he broke this down into three things that the happiest people, if you have no context of the person in front of you, but you want to create and start to build some sort of connection, Livingston found the happiest people have something to do. They have someone to love and they have something to look forward to. And the consistent theme in each of those questions has a high emotional component, something to do. What are you passionate about? Someone to love. Tell me about, you know, your partner, your, your child, what lights you up? And there's something to look forward to. That is your drive and motivation and vision for where you see your life going. Those are such personal questions with a high emotional component. That's how we can begin to really open things up and then let that person lead. And ask the good follow-up questions of what and how that are expansive, that allow someone to be seen, heard, and appreciated so they feel like, hey, Clint cares about me. I'm going to open up. I'm going to share more. He's giving me time. That is phenomenal. Something to do, someone to love, something to look forward to. The Riaz, what do you think some of the barriers are as it relates to curiosity for people? And how can we encourage it more? Number one barrier is convenience. We live in a culture of convenience. And, and think about every day when you open up your computer and you need to know, you know, know some information. You go to Google. You go to YouTube. You don't even type out a question. You just type out the words. It could just say podcast interviewer equipment. Boom. What do I need? Somebody's got a video. Somebody's answering the question before you even articulated it. And I, I think this culture of convenience has allowed us to do amazing things, move at such a rapid pace, but it's taken out the critical thought that kind of goes into formulating the questions that get people to open up. So practicing curiosity is important on a daily basis. Becoming a great observationalist, writing things down of what you see, you know, uh, uh, how did that come about? How could this be better? What's a spin-off product of this? And to consciously practice these types of things on a daily basis. You know, I was having a conversation this week uh, during a presentation I was doing for a group that uh, was talking about human connection. And they said, well, how as leaders can we disrupt our, you know, our current patterns? You know, one of the things I really champion is having a remote expert uh, join your team meetings. And what I mean by this is, say you've got a you know a weekly meeting that goes on, you're preparing for a big presentation, bring in someone that is within your network, that is within your organization, that is aligned with your goals, your mission, and your objectives, that has no idea about the project you're working on. And have them come in and do a session where you're brainstorming for questions, not answers. And that remote expert is not fearing judgment. Is that a silly question? They're not fearing, oh, that is too outrageous. They are just looking at it through their fresh eyes and giving you an honest perspective. Because what's happening right now, whether it's in our social circles or in remote setups where people haven't even met each other at work, people were recruited during the pandemic, is that you fear saying the wrong thing and alienating yourself from the group. So having a curiosity role model, bringing in a remote expert, and having fresh eyes, fresh, fresh perspectives, encouraging questions before we just jump to the answers, I think it's a great way to get past this barrier of convenience. The questions, not answers, do you think that too often we always try to jump to an answer 
instead of asking questions of each other to dig deeper behind what's happening? Absolutely. It's, you know, one of the habits I talk about in the book is how we listen without distraction, our desire, even though our intent might be pure to help solve the problem at hand, we miss out on the opportunity to feel out the situation because we're so quick to fix it. Picture the conversations you have on a daily basis. And especially when you're faced with some sort of a challenge, this is why it's so valuable to have a good coach in your life. Good coaching comes from somebody asking you the questions, listening, being a mirror, and reflecting back to you so you do the work and you're coming to your own revelations. But what I find is in leadership, it's so easy to fall into the trap of interrupting somebody when you disagree with them, providing unsolicited advice, and just just cutting them off because you think you just know the answer already. Meanwhile, if we want to inspire If we want to change, if we want to persuade anyone, we cannot do that unless we understand someone first. And that's where the power of curiosity and just staying curious for longer periods will open and unlock powerful connections and relationships. That's landing really well. Seek first to understand, then to be understood is, I believe, uh, one of the seven habits of highly effective people. And I, I come back to that book over and over so many things that make life better. And it's it's a classic that I think a lot of people forget and don't really dive into enough, but highly recommend that for young people who are listening is, is to go back and read that from the late Stephen Covey. The So let's go backwards because we jumped to habit two, but you just brought up habit one and I thought habit one was integral to creating that human connection and habit one was listen without distraction. And something that blew me away when I read it in the book, Riaz, was you mentioned that people immediately after hearing what someone said have forgotten 50% or more of what was just said. So can you take us through some of the ways that we can improve that so we're hearing more? we're listening better, and we're engaging with the person on the other side. The starting point on this piece on listening, I think it's valuable to look at how our brains are working for us versus against us. And the science and research really show that on a daily basis, our brains can absorb four to 500 words per minute. Yet the average person speaks at a rate of about 125 words per minute. So what's happening is we're almost too smart for our own good. Because if we only need 25% of our capacity, our brain capacity to understand the words of what somebody's saying, that means we need to work double time on channeling that other 75% that doesn't get caught up in the technological distractions, especially when we're virtual learning or we're in virtual meetings when it's so easy to scroll, check in with our screens, especially when we get emotionally distracted. Because as soon as we disagree and we have a heightened emotion, We shut off and we stop listening. Or if we simply get caught up in daydreaming of, oh yeah, I forgot about this. You know, what are the Canucks playing next? And somebody's talking and and because we have this high mental capacity, if we're not consciously giving somebody the gift of 100% of our undivided attention, we've lost. We're making it that much harder on ourselves. So as a starting point to listen more effectively is to ask ourselves, and you can do this exercise on a daily basis, 
Take some notes in the next couple of days of the conversations you're having and ask yourself, where am I actually getting distracted? What are the distractions showing up for me? Because to change anything in our lives, we need to amplify the sense of self-awareness of what is getting in the way. And then once we've kind of pinpointed those hotspots of distractions, then we can take the action one by one, not trying to do everything all at once, but one by one, picking them off and watching the difference that makes of one, uh, the reaction somebody else has when they know you are fully present with them. And then two, how that presence is impacting uh, the, the quality of curiosity you can bring forth. So I think it's one, understanding how our brains work. And is this something that you, you've worked on with people? And what are some of the common theme, things that they bring up that are distractions for them? And, and how are you able to, as you said, break them down one by one and just start to tackle them individually? And what does that look like? It starts with that question of, do you know what distracts you in the first place? And the first point of, of, a, of a barrier that people come up with is always technology. But when you start to quantify what the other distractions are, and some leaders have said to me, you know, I'm quick to jump in because I I want the meeting to run efficiently. Even understanding how destructive that could be of in a group setting, if we're doing that and somebody feels shut down, everybody else in the group is witness to that and they don't want to be shut down. So then they pull themselves back and then you don't even get the chance to hear what everybody else has to say. So many leaders have said to me, they despise virtual presentations and meetings simply because the engagement is poor. The first thing I'll say is, well, what have you done to truly listen to your audience even before that presentation has begun? And that point of engagement, uh, one-on-one, uh, could pull out some interesting stories, interesting ideas. You could be championing and empowering people to speak up well beforehand. You know, if we're looking at the presentation or meeting context, I I like to think virtual, really good virtual meetings and presentations are kind of like talk shows. You have a producer set up the content beforehand. You have your presenter who's going to deliver and engage with the audience. But you also in your audience say, okay, who else is going to speak up here? And once that's role modeled, other people will feel like I can have my voice heard and then they'll do the same. So I think a lot of this comes down to how you can empower people in the first place before you shut them down. And then that'll, you know, have a domino effect on everybody else in the room. Even Riaz, you could reach out and say, in advance of this presentation, we're going to have an open Q&A. Would love questions on whatever topic comes to mind for you. Please feel free to share them in advance if, you know, just really encouraging the audience coming into the presentation so they already know, hey, they're really encouraging me to talk, that type of pre-planning, if you will. Yeah, and and even going deeper on it, because sometimes when you put it out to everybody, you get this bystander effect that they're like, oh, Clint's going to be in the room. He's always asking killer questions. I'm just going to lean on him. And then if you're not asking the question, someone's going to say, well, I thought Rio was going to ask the question. Clint's not asking the question, crickets. So you, so you reach out to four or five key individuals and say, We'd love you to ask a question. You know, if you want to have a chat in advance, we can talk about what those questions might look like together and brainstorm them. And in that way, you have two or three key people who may not be your usual key people, as you just said, and that encourages everyone else to then jump on to the question wagon. Huge. Bang on. Love it. Love it. And you're right. We've done a lot of virtual meetings at work and it's the same two or three people asking questions. And if they don't, 
then there's no questions and you almost feel obligated to say, oh, well, I didn't want to ask one today, but I'll jump in because no one else is doing it. So that would be a great way to address that. You also, Riaz, talk about the importance of slowing down. And is mindfulness, meditation, something that we can be doing to slow ourselves down so that when we are then in a conversation, our brain isn't rapid firing? What does that look like for you? This is such a valuable point that you're bringing up and such an important practice, um, this this art of of mindfulness, because in conversations, in meetings, in presentations, especially virtual, people fear silence. They think it's a bad thing. And I can tell you from all those years of of broadcasting on television, if if things went silent for a second, that's how you grab people's attention. But that silence can be such a form of respect. If somebody has thrown out a powerful question and right away you've jumped into this autopilot mode of just answering something that that you're pulling out of the back of your mind, I would challenge the idea of, did you truly hear what they were asking you? It can be a huge compliment when you're taking the moment to digest what someone has given you. And when we've done that, that creates just this element of intimacy. That's what I think the power of you know silence can do and this mindfulness can do because it, it is tricky. We're overwhelmed with information right now. We're overwhelmed with just distraction of where we are. So practicing the art of mindfulness. I mean, I went from you know, flooring the gas pedal, waking up at 3.30 in the morning to do a live television show. If you wake up, you research what are the stories of the day, bang, let's talk about it, three-hour live show, uh, reset, how did it go, let's plan for tomorrow, get some sleep, boom, and you're just in this cycle. But during the pandemic and just this transition of this last couple of years, taking the opportunity to work through 10 minutes, 20 minutes of just a meditation exercise to understand where my thought patterns are going and how to calm them so I'm more present in the moment, it's been such a valuable exercise. And I find some of the research on the top 2% of leaders out there, yes, they're intentional, yes, they're great leaders, but they are extremely mindful that they're hearing every single detail. And one of the things I champion is not only hearing those details in the moment, that somebody could be sharing, especially when they're personal details, but documenting the details and documenting the uncommon commonalities people might share. Maybe it's a shared love. You mentioned the Canucks earlier. Maybe it's a shared love of the team of specifically what you connect with. Maybe, Clint, you had a great story of why you love the team. Maybe the, the the story of the transition for your child going from elementary school to high school. And my son's only uh, almost three years old. So uh, you know, I don't have that. But if we did have that bond and you could bring that up a week, a month, a year later and just slip that in casually, think about every email when people check in with you. They could say, hey, Clint, hope you're well. Hope you're well is such a throwaway statement where you could insert, hey, Clint, how's the transition going with with, with your kid? And then immediately you'd be like, oh, that person remembered. And I think that's the valuable part of mindfulness, that if we can be so present in the moment and remember those details, they can serve you in creating a long-term intimacy with that person as you build up that connection. And I'm respecting the silence a little more versus jumping right in because there's two, three, four different ways we can go on this one. And I'll come back to habit one because you just highlighted something in there that was great and and you talk about later in the book and an example that you gave that I thought was very powerful was you're sharing the story of 
the interaction you had where you remembered someone had just adopted a puppy. And so when, when they emailed you, you responded with, how's your dog? And you remembered their dog's name. See, I don't, I don't remember it right now off the top of my head, but your ability to build connection with that person by doing that was very powerful. Can you share what that looked like, Riaz, for the listeners? Yeah, that, that was a really interesting scenario for me because uh, I'm a big supporter of the Canucks for Kids Fund. And every year they do a telethon inside Rogers Arena that gets aired on, on, on Sportsnet. So before the Canucks game that year, I didn't know this was the head producer, one of the head producers at Sportsnet uh, when he came in, but I could tell the way everybody reacted. It's almost like, you know, you listen with your eyes and you see everyone's acting a different way now. So a head honcho just rolled in. And his name was Ed. And, you know, we just had a great chat about the Canucks for Kids Fund, about his life. And I just did a time check to see when we were going live to air. And on my phone was a picture of uh, my rescue dog at the time, Smiley. And Lori, my wife, huge animal lover, she had rescued Smiley from a great foundation called the Soy Dog Foundation that rescues dogs from the meat trade and in uh, dog meat trade in Thailand. So Ed saw it and he was really curious about it. And then he went on to talk about the fact that he had, he had a rescue dog as well. So we bonded over our love of dogs. And then sure enough, the broadcast was, he was getting going. I said, Hey, thanks. Great to meet you. Boom. I didn't even have another conversation with him that night. It was just, it was chaos as we were going live to air, working through breaks and everything. But a year later, Ed reached out and invited me to participate in the telethon once again. And he had emailed me and I emailed him back and asked him about his dog. And immediately he called me. He didn't email me back. He's like, dude, how do you remember that? And I'm like, dude, I remember a conversation, man. We talked about her love. And he told me about this ESPN documentary about this dog named Arthur that joined this super marathon adventure race. And he said, if you watch that, you'll be in tears, which I totally cried like a baby. But we just had this bond over it. And when he picked up the phone and called, it just reinforced to me the smallest personal detail might pop up when you least expect it. And I had documented that. I just, I just opened up my phone later that night. When I meet somebody, I'll just document in the notes, put down their name, and I'll put down three things that kind of stood out to me in that conversation that we had because I don't expect to remember everything. So I want to set myself up for success. So I almost open up a conversation file on them and then know that if I'm going to engage them and see them or email them, how can I draw from that and remember that moment and, and re, reignite that connection that we had? And it works. It makes a huge difference with people personally and professionally. That absolutely makes a ton of sense. And Riaz, that came out in the book when you were talking about a very important concept, which is make people feel famous. Are there some other tips and tricks that you would recommend? And tricks is not the right word, but I believe you understand the intent behind it. Are there different things we can be doing to achieve that? And why is making someone feel like a rock star so important? And Slight digression, I, I loved it because it reminded me of another great classic, How to Win Friends and, and Influence People, which shares very similar context. So I'll, I'll pass it over to you on that one. Yeah, and that's a classic book you just you know you mentioned with Winning Friends and Influencing People as well. What stood out to me year after year interviewing people was a statement articulated that I remember reading it and I thought, this is how I'm going to approach every single interview. 
and that psychologist William James once said that the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. It's funny, I mentioned my son Nico, who's almost three years old. One of the most common lines he throws out at me is, hey, daddy, look at me. Daddy, look at me. He wants to be seen. He wants to feel important. He, he wants to feel special. And that's why in the art of the interviewing of how, or even one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, how you make them the star of the show. More often than not, I found that successful impressions landed not by what I said, but was, was the approach of elevating them. And if somebody has done something that is notable, one of the great approaches I encourage anyone listening to this uh, to use in your life is to practice specificity with your praise. And I'm going to give you an example of this. When you see something that, that you really loved or something that moved you, it's so easy to walk up to that person or email them and just say, great job on that project, great job on that presentation. But it's such a missed opportunity to show them how they moved you, how they changed you. And if we're going to practice specificity, think about, you know, Clint, in that podcast, The Pursuit of Learning, that episode you did with, with, with Riaz and that point you brought up on, on, on the power of appreciation. I loved how specific you got there because now I can use that and that's impacted my relationships. Pointing out what the action was and then articulating what the impact was for you makes a huge difference. And then building on that specificity of making that praise public, celebrating that person. If you're the leader showing that you respect this contribution and everybody should know about it and making that praise urgent. Sometimes we hold back and we wait and think, I'm going to wait for the perfect time to, to let that person know what they did was amazing. But why? We miss out on that opportunity to let somebody know in, in that moment when it's the most meaningful. Because whenever we do something that, that is now open for public consumption, that is the point of uncertainty and vulnerability for somebody to understand, did this land the way I wanted it to? And you're feeling really uneasy, really. And then somebody walks in and says, you know what made this special? It's how you articulate it. It was how confident you were, how you allowed me to walk away thinking, I never saw it that way. And now I'm going to live my life differently. And if you can connect your praise to purpose. What's an example of that one, Riaz? Connecting the praise to purpose. Yeah, think about what you're trying to do as an organization and, and your goals and your mission and, and your objectives. And somebody has done maybe a small act of how they reached out to a customer. Say you work in customer service and someone went above and beyond and a client or customer's email back saying, this was incredible. I was so frustrated. I hated your company. I was going to cancel my service, but this client or this customer service rep cared about me, listened to me, helped me troubleshoot it. And you know what? They won me back. And if one of your values of your company is, is really focused on, uh, you know, the customer first mentality, connect that feedback to your living our values, your demonstrate, your showcasing what it's all about. And that just reminds somebody of this is a group I love being a part of because we share those same values. That's very powerful in an organization to do. And it also, Riaz, brings up because it's so challenging for a lot of people. Why do so many people have trouble leading with gratitude? Ego. They think that they're given up power. Maybe it's the culture of comparison that, hey, you did a better job than I did on this. And the ego that comes in with comparison, I don't want to give them that. That maybe it's a challenge. You know, you know what's interesting as an example of what happens on social media for those that post on LinkedIn, when you watch engagement with 
somebody that posts up tips, if they're an expert on any given topic, that necessarily doesn't get the greatest engagement as somebody sharing a personal accomplishment where everybody's diving in and saying, congrats, amazing, can't believe you did that. Because on the one that posted on experts and tips, people don't, don't want to admit, oh, I didn't know that. I don't want to champion that to show my inadequacy. I think that's where ego comes in. So maybe if if you're not giving that praise, I think the question is, is there something missing for you that's limiting you from reaching out and celebrating and championing what somebody else did? You know, I'm a big fan of, regardless of someone in my industry or outside of the industry, if something moved me, I, I, I will jump out and send them a direct message of, I thought this was incredibly powerful and here's why. Thank you for doing this work. Keep doing it because I want to see that person uh, continue making that that powerful contribution. And it's a great point. I've recently started doing that on social media where if I see something that changed my frame of mind or or showed me something in a different light than I would normally see it and make an effort to say to that person, thanks for sharing this. I'd never thought of it that way. And, and this gives me a new way to look at something. And it may have been influenced by the book for me to uh, start doing that because the two are tied pretty close together in timing. That's a win, man. That's a win. And what does gratitude do for us as individuals? Why is it so important, not only to the person who's receiving it, but to us giving it? Yeah, it, it is such a powerful tool. And if we go back to the science of just simply gratitude, some of the research and studies I found, one of them, the practice of gratitude on a daily basis. If we're writing down three things we're grateful for, that has the ability to rewire your brain. If you're writing down three things you're grateful for up to 21 days, it makes you more optimistic up to six months. The idea of writing thank you cards to people shows the research that not only it empowers them, not only it makes them feel famous, but improves our overall well-being because it makes us feel like we've made an impactful contribution. You know, it kind of circles back to the challenge of isolation and loneliness. If I was going in and asking for help, if I was struggling and say a specialist or therapist was the one helping me, is that necessarily going to help me break out of the cycle of loneliness? No, because in that we need some reciprocity that they've made a contribution to, to support me, but we also need to feel like we've made a meaningful contribution, which is why volunteering has such a powerful impact, which is why any form of philanthropy is such a valuable tool for us as individuals uh, and a medium for major organizations. Giving back is such a powerful tool, and that's how gratitude can show up of how we give back to ourselves, especially when we're struggling, if we're in a rut of things not going right, reminding ourselves, giving back to ourselves of the things that are going right. It's so easy to lose sight of it. And if we can do that for other people, it reminds us of the contribution we can make at the exact same time. In Riaz, in Buddhism, they have a concept that they refer to as mudita. And the idea there is you're actually meditating on the joy of success for others. And so when you meditate on that long enough and you start to practice it, when you see a friend or someone on social media who's successful, you get filled with happiness instead of the egoic, oh, well, why didn't I get to go on vacation? Or I wish I was. You just look at it and you just, you feel happy for what that person has achieved. It reminds me a lot of what you were saying 
right there is learning to be happy for others and gracious in it in a way that then increases your optimism and gives you more to look forward to in life. The, I want to go backwards in time, back to habit one. We're flipping, we're flipping all over the place, but you mentioned something that reminded me of it when you said, listen with your eyes, which was one of your five tips or five ways to improve listening. Can you take the listeners through what those are? Yeah, you know what? To not overwhelm <laughs> the the audience because we're, we're throwing out so much, I'm going to hone in on listen with your eyes and why this is so important. A great mentor of mine that I had the chance to work with, and he he's the editor of the book, uh, he reminded me of something very valuable, that gesture precedes conscious thought. And I'm going to say this again, gesture precedes conscious thought. This is why listening with your eyes is so important. And when somebody says to me, you know, I'm just going to go, I'm, I'm just going to go up and wing it. I'm better when I wing it. I'm more authentic. It's not going to work. And if it does, you're a unicorn to hit a home run with your message. And here's why. Here's what happens. Because you start sharing words, but if you haven't truly understood and, and mapped out the message and impact you want to have on somebody, your physicality will show that. And if your physical message is off from the verbal message, we're going to believe the physical message more. And that lack of consistency will lead to a point of confusion with somebody. And if we're trying to understand, do I trust what this person is saying, we value more the physicality because we gesture before that that conscious thought comes out. And if we're listening with our eyes of what somebody's saying, you know, one of the things I love to do is, if especially if I'm working with somebody in a coaching perspective, I always say to them, first pass, second pass. If they're saying, well, how, you know, how do I convey this passion? How do I convey this message? Is watch yourself with no audio first and listen with your eyes and ask yourself, what do you see? And this mentor, Nick Morgan, he gave me something called the happy, sad game. And he said, have some people read the same copy as if one, they're in a happy frame of mind and two, they're in, they're in a sad state of mind and then watch it. And more often than not, I have leaders say to me, well, I thought I was happy when I read it, but I don't look happy. So it's really important to understand our physicality of how we show up and what we're communicating because that is more powerful than the actual words that come out. And when we're in conversation to understand people's body language and think about uh, heated conversations of is our breath more shallow when we're getting defensive? Is our jaw clenching up? Are our fists clenching? Are we starting to turn our body? Are our arms being crossed? There are so many cues we can pick up on when we listen with our eyes. Watch that. Watch for that in our conversations and watch how much data you can retrieve from that to understand somebody and help guide the conversation to help keep them open and keep the conversation productive. The So you mentioned first pass, second pass. First pass, we're watching ourselves back with no audio. And then as second pass, we put the audio back on and see how the two pair together. And Riaz, what are some good ways for us to improve our physicality when we speak? Is it searching out those public speakers who we value for this attribute or that and maybe practicing their hand gestures, their stance, their body language? I believe if, if we want to have strong uh, physical communication, it starts with understanding what are we communicating in the first place. 
And perhaps this, this is a, such a valuable tool of virtual communication because a lot of the meetings are recorded. If you're presenting, uh, they are recorded. There's a link. Watch it. I mean, I would watch playback after every single show 20 years in. Still to this day, if I'm doing a presentation, I'll say, hey, can I take a look at that link after? Can you send it to me? Because I want to watch it and continuously get better at it. And before, rather than try to emulate someone that you think is great because you could lose a sense of yourself trying to copy somebody else, ask yourself, what is the intent of the message you want to convey? And when, and then when you watch yourself, did that come across authentically to you? And it's hard. People cringe. Like think about when, when you did your first episode of this podcast and you listened to yourself. What went through your head? How did that feel? Oh, Riaz, this is this has been the worst experience of my life, right? There's an actual there's an actual term for it. Most human beings, there's a you you have a dislike of your of your own voice. And I, I've had that my whole life. I've just felt, well, my voice is this. And to your point, some of the greatest feedback I've received from people throughout this journey has actually been that they appreciate my voice on the podcast to say, well, your soothing voice, calm speaker. And it's a nice voice. I, I, I feel cozy and safe with you, man. It's a good voice. <laughs> well, it's, it's great to hear, but when you hear it back yourself, you're right. The first, and so you did this for, for 20 years daily for the first, I'd say five or six or seven, maybe even 10 to 12 episodes. It was hard to hear. And it took probably the last five where I said, okay, I, I don't now, I don't now notice that it's my voice and cringe at it. I notice it's the voice of one of the people on the conversation and I don't mind it. What I do do and what some people have noticed happening over time, because I do listen to every episode at least twice, uh, playing it back as you will, is I learn how to, what someone said to me last night was how to evolve your voice as you go from episode to episode. So they can see an evolution in how I'm speaking to people. And they were my first guests on the show. And so they've seen an evolution over time, each interview and how I'm changing speed, pacing, etc. And I don't have that physicality because we haven't uh, started recording video, but I'm sure you're right in that as soon as we start having video on the podcast, which I'm thinking is probably only a few months away because we technically are recording it, I'll start to look at how I'm physically showing up in the interviews, less playing with the beard, less staring left and right. So I understand what you're saying, as you say it, and I hadn't even thought that way is the same way you would improve as an athlete. Watch back the game tape. When that guy did that, I went left. Should I have gone right? When that guy moves his foot this way, is he going to try to dribble around me on the outside and I need to be moving my feet quicker? Right. So you're effectively saying, watch yourself over and over and just make the incremental improvements consistently over time. And you will have exponential improvements in the results. Yeah. This, I love the, the, the comparison you're giving to, to athletes. It's, it's so bang on of what this is. And to, to not do it in a counterproductive way, it's almost like jumping on a scale. If you're, if you're training for something and you're trying to hit a weight goal, if you're on that scale every single day, it's so easy to get discouraged. But if you're checking in on that scale uh, every month, every six months, every year, 
and you're putting in the work, you're going to notice a transformation. And it's the same thing here. And it's really important, I believe, to do that work yourself first before you uh, ask for outside opinion on it. Because if you haven't critiqued it, if you haven't evolved it, you know yourself best. And once you've done the work to analyze how you feel it could be better, then opening it up to somebody you trust that has that credibility that could coach and help level you up, then they could point out something that you may not have thought of and you're still not losing a sense of yourself. Because if we rely on public opinion for everything, we'll lose a sense of our identity. So doing that work ourselves of are we showing the best version of ourselves? is this authentic to my sense of self is so important. And then continuously growing, evolving. I love that word, evolving your voice. Uh, yeah, these things take practice. Riaz, I'm conscious of time we talked about. Do you have time for two more questions and then we'll wrap up? Let's do it, yeah. All right, so the first one, you suggest that being vulnerable and engaging your audience can best be done through a story. And you offer several tips for crafting a good story. And it's when I see you speaking online, when I hear you talking, it's something, even your voice in your writing is telling great stories. So what are some tips you have for the listeners on how to craft that great story? So whether it's in their writing, whether it's in their speaking to engage with the person on the other side. Mm. Front to back, if you're thinking, a common question I get from people is, well, what if I don't have any stories good enough to share? And I always smile because I just think you haven't given yourself a fair shot yet. And there's such an opportunity to dissect what you've been through because if you are living this life, you have faced some point of adversity that you may not have realized and you just went through, but didn't journal it or didn't uh, just document what that transformation or change was. So when it comes to stories, I find personally the most impactful ones reading or watching somebody are those that start with conflict and with change. One of the things that happens with storytelling is that people feel, people have the luxury of detail and feel they need to uh, share as much as possible with the audience. Meanwhile, the greatest communicators know how to trim that excess detail and get right to it. Like if you're watching any great movie or say serial drama, miniseries, what do they start with? They start with the crime that took place where immediately you're thinking, what just happened here? And then your main character, they want to look at, well, what did that character do? Like, what did you do to work through that then? This incident happened. What did you do? And then the audience is always going to be asking, what can I do? So at the end of it, What's that takeaway or lesson you're going to share with that audience? So what happened with that conflict? What did you do? And then what can I do? Which another way to quantify which I do in the book is struggle, conflict, and resolution. Because connection happens in the struggle. Everybody roots for an underdog. And instead of allowing the, you know, some of the times what happens in stories is they're very trivial stories being told. People need high stakes. Make it life or death. Make it that the deal was going to fall apart if we didn't do this. Make it so that there's a cliffhanger with that conflict. And then when you share how you work through it, the audience doesn't want to make the same mistake that you went through. They want to learn from it. They want you to be the guide to make them the hero. So ask yourself, what was the lesson of that drama you went through? 
And they'll walk away perhaps saying, I never looked at it that way, or my life's going to be better now because of that lesson. And it's so tied to emotion that makes it more memorable. And that's why stories are so impactful. In that last few lines ago, you mentioned the word hero. We're really taking them, trying to craft our own stories in a way that represent the classic hero's journey, struggle, conflict, resolution. That's beautiful. The last question to wrap it up, and you'll recognize this one, and I've started to use it regularly. What's the most important conversation, Riaz, that you've ever had? Mm, there are a few that stand out, and you know, there's a few I share in this book, but given the fact we are recording this a day before Father's Day, I am, uh, I'm going to reference a conversation I had with my dad uh, hours before I got married in April of 2015. And my dad was never a guy that talked about his feelings a lot. You know, both my parents, they came from East Africa in the 70s. They they hustled hard to create a life for myself and my brother. And they worked through it. But in that moment, for a guy that never talked about his feelings, he kind of paused hours before we got married. And we talked about like the journey of marriage and the highs and lows of what we can go through. And he reminded me in that moment of what I was about to embark on, that it will not be perfect that there will be highs, there will be lows, but those moments are just temporary. So if it's good, soak it all in because it's not going to last forever. And if it's bad, remember two words that stick out in your mind for now, because even when you're into rock bottom, it will not last forever. And he said to me, you know, these experiences are temporary, but he reminded me that your potential is permanent. And those words in that conversation, you know, really stick with me. I lost my father suddenly in the fall of 2019. And I had never lost someone close to me so quickly. And it was so devastating. But those words truly stuck with me to get me through one, that point of grief, but two, this this last year during the pandemic. If there's one thing you take away from the podcast, uh, from, from listening to us in this conversation today is to never stop believing in your potential. Your potential will always be permanent. And no matter how good it is, Know that's temporary and enjoy it and how bad it might be feeling, no matter what you're battling, those two words, for now. I have this anxiety and depression. That's for now. You can work through this. Uh, those words have definitely landed that day and stayed with me up until this point. And I'll, I'll carry that forward with me for the rest of my life. That was beautiful, Riaz. And, and I was sorry to hear in your book about your loss. Thanks, man. And the message you shared about how to talk to people who are going through grief. Something that I had never, like most people, been comfortable with. What do I say? How do I deal with it? And you share some great advice in the book on how to do it. And I've been able to put that into practice over the last six months with people that are close to me who have lost loved ones over the last six to nine months. So it's been, uh, it's been an interesting time for all of us. And those words for now, really stick out. Thanks for joining me today on The Pursuit of Learning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for taking the time to go through the book and creating this conversation. And congrats. This is, this is an important space you created. So congrats on the podcast. All right. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.